So praise the Lord that He's seen fit to bring us together again to worship Him. Continuing together through the book of Acts, we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, Jesus heals His church. We're going to look at the first uh, part of that section, and then we'll look at the second part of that section next week. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse uh, 26 of chapter 9 through to verse 8 of chapter 10, and you see we'll be focusing on verses 32 through 35 when Peter said, Lydda. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In this text, we see that Jesus the Christ heals His church. To be always of good courage and to engage in battle with strength and a good hope, the struggling Christian must necessarily always have a steadfast comfort in this life. There must be something that is continuously administered to him from heaven. It must be something that enables him in all strife and in all the sorrows of this world, which are manifold and occur relentlessly, to lift up, to encourage, to refresh, and to comfort his heart, saying, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. There must be something that during his journey through this valley of Baca will always be a well of refreshment upon which his weary soul can rely, such as a staff, something that renders him patient, gives him a good hope, and causes him to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, as we see in Acts 9.31. These words written hundreds of years ago by a Dutch theologian are true today in South Carolina. We need comfort. We must be continually fed from heaven. Today's text, we'll see Jesus again at work in His church, and by God's grace, His Holy Spirit will help us to understand Christ's love and power more deeply, and to be more able to receive His comfort more and more, and to walk in life and in death happily. So we'll just look at verses 32 through 43, the healing of Aeneas at Lydda. It goes on, as we'll look at next week, to see the resurrection of Tabitha. And this whole section points to Christ as the healer of his church. So we'll look at that today, and then as usual, we'll have some questions to know and to love and to obey God. If you take a look in your sermon notes there, you'll see a map of Samaria and Galilee and Judea, and you'll also see some cities named there, Caesarea and Joppa and Lydda and Jerusalem, and you can kind of see where these cities are in relation to one another. You'll also see the plain of Sharon along the coast there between the coast and Samaria, and I don't know about you, but I like to see things visually whenever cities and locations are being mentioned so we can see where the gospel is going where I saw in verse 31 that the churches in Galilee and Samaria and Judea were edified, they were comforted, they were growing. So the whole region, the gospel has gone out to this whole region. And in today's text, we'll see work of, the work of Peter throughout the whole region, but specifically in Lydda and the next week at Joppa. In addition, you'll see another map on the next page there that shows you, if you look closely, 
where Tarsus is and where uh, Paul was sent in, in the prior text that we looked at. And you can see how the Mediterranean Sea there would be a nice way to travel from Caesarea up to Tarsus. And Tarsus is up there in the area of uh, Cilicia. And so we'll see today, Syria is just north there, Damascus. It doesn't say it on this map. But Damascus is kind of where the Syria area begins. And it curves around there and curves into Cilicia. And those two places will be mentioned today. So you can get a sense there that this region of the Mediterranean, the eastern Mediterranean region, is being enfolded by the gospel already at this point in time. So let's look at the healing of Aeneas at Lydda. The text says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So the last time we have encountered Peter was in Acts chapter 8 and was in Samaria. You recall his interaction with Simon the sorcerer there in chapter 8. Verse 14 of chapter 8 says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So this is the last time that we've been (coughs) interacting with Peter in the book of Acts. And he's in Samaria at that time. But he left there and went back to Jerusalem. Verse 25, chapter 8 says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter, there in chapter 8, goes down to Samaria, does some work there, goes back to Jerusalem. He's preaching on the way back to Jerusalem. Now, since then, we are told in today's text that Peter has gone out from Jerusalem to all parts of the country. Now, Remember that Saul has gone to the region of Tarsus, which you looked at on the map already, and he's there for about five to six years. I don't have time to get into kind of how those numbers, how we arrive at those numbers, but he's there for about five to six years between AD 37 and AD 43. These are called the silent years in the life of Paul. Before he fled from Jerusalem, Saul uh, saw Peter in Jerusalem. We know that from Galatians 1. I'm going to read from verse in Galatians 1 from verse 15 to verse uh, 24, but you'll see in terms of today's text, verses 21 through 24, Saul tells us what he's doing during this time. So I want us to kind of, as we're going through the book of Acts, even though we're going to be looking at one section, what Peter's doing, what Paul is doing, to bear in mind that the gospel's going out throughout this entire region through multiple different preachers, multiple different gospel ministers. So here's what Paul says about this time of the silent years while he's in the Tarsus region. This is from Galatians chapter 1. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And we talked about that. He was in Arabia for around three years. We know that from this next verse, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So he spent time with Peter for 15 days. How long he was in Jerusalem, we don't know. (coughs) 
But in last week's text, we know he was there long enough to dispute with the Hellenists and for them to come to hate him and want to kill him and for him to have to flee. Now, verse 19 of Galatians chapter 1, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And remember, in Galatians, he's defending himself against the attacks, that he's some sort of sub-apostle, that he doesn't necessarily have apostolic authority. And he's making it clear that he got his ministry directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Going on, verse 20. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So we saw last week that they sent him to Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. Going on to verse 22. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only... He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. And if you look at Cilicia, you can see it kind of starts to get into the area where his first missionary journey was in southern Galatia. And so it's possible that there were some connections generated, and maybe that's why he went there for his first missionary journey. But he was there for, it looks like, around five to six years, the silent years. Commentary says, Luke describes Peter as being involved in a ministry which was geographically wide-ranging, as indicated both by the verb traveled and the prepositional phrase. The translation of the latter is disputed. Throughout the country assumes a reference back to the regions mentioned in verse 31. So Peter's going throughout the country, and right before that it had mentioned Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, which seems most plausible. Since we had seen Peter last in verse 25, chapter 8, verse 25, with a reference to missionary preaching in the Samaritan villages, the expression may describe here missionary activity in all the towns of the regions that we had just seen mentioned in verse 31. So likely Peter has been very active in this region, and meanwhile Saul is active in the region north of that, Cilicia and Syria. Now going on to verse 32b, what's going on with Peter? As he went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So now Luke takes us to a specific experience that Peter had to give us an example of his ministry in this region. Now about the town of Lydda, it was located about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem in the foothills between the coastal plain and the central highlands on the edge of the plain of Sharon, which is why I gave you that map there. You can see the plain of Sharon there is towards the west and that you see that Lydda sits right there along that uh, eastern edge of the plain of Sharon. Going on. So, see, look, we get into these details because the Bible is real history. This isn't just about ideas like there's dates and there's places and these are real historical events that took place. All right, next. Uh, Going back to the commentary. It was the capital of one of the 11 toparchies of Judea And Josephus described it as a village that was in size not inferior to a city, which means that it did not have city rights. So we know some things about Lydda, this city, from extra-biblical sources from that time. So who did he come to at Lydda? He came to the saints living in Lydda. So his primary purpose was to go there and to encourage and to edify and to build up Saints, And it appears similar to what happened with his visit to Samaria in chapter 8. They heard that the gospel had been received and he went down to encourage the saints. But as we will see, like what happened in Samaria, his visit ends up also having a significant evangelistic impact. And that's worth considering that 
as the church is strengthened, often we see an evangelistic impact. Whether it's miraculous healing or whether it's just the church growing up in beauty and love and strength, there's often an evangelistic impact. Verse 33, it says that Peter found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So this is a very severe situation, right? It's very significant. This, this man has been paralyzed in his bed for eight years. Now, he's called a certain man. Was he one of the saints? Probably, given the introduction to this section. But it's not necessary that he's a saint based on the language that's present. Now, he had been the, in the misery of this paralysis for eight years. All right? So what were you doing in 2015? Right? right? What has occurred in your life in the last eight years? Could you imagine being stuck in your bed, unable to get up for eight years? That's what he's going through. And this word translated by the New King James as bedridden is actually the combination of two Greek words which, meant, which, come, which come together mean to lie prostrate in bed. So that's what this man couldn't move. Now, this word bed is also important. It's a pallet, a camp bed. It's a rather simple bed holding only one person light enough to even pick up. Mark chapter 2, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Remember this story. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So this bed is small enough to be picked up by people and the person can be carried on the bed. This word paralyzed uh, means suffering from the relaxing of the nerves, unstrung, weak of limbs. They don't know exactly what the sickness was, but he couldn't move his body because of weakness, because of dysfunction of his nerves or his muscles. Commentary says his case was very deplorable. He was sick of the palsy, a dumb palsy, perhaps a dead palsy. The disease was extreme for he kept his bed. It was inveterate, for he kept his bed eight years. And we may suppose that both he himself and all about him despaired of relief for him and concluded upon no other than that he must still keep his bed until he was removed to his grave. Christ chose such patience as this, whose disease was incurable in a course of nature to show how desperate the case of fallen mankind was when he undertook their cure. When we were without strength as this poor man, he sent his word to heal us. So yes, we see clearly that Jesus heals his church physically. He heals paralyzed people. Jesus does this. But even when Jesus chooses not to heal, his heart is toward us and we can always trust in his goodness towards us whether he heals us or not and the knowledge of what he has done whether he does it in our life or not brings us great comfort verse 34 Peter said to him so, so what does Peter do clearly Peter knows something Peter said to him Aeneas Jesus the Christ heals you arise and make your bed then he arose immediately. So Peter believes that Jesus will heal Aeneas right there on the spot. That's what Peter believes. 
So Peter announces this to him. He says, Jesus the Christ heals you. He doesn't say Jesus will heal you. He could have said that. Jesus did heal like that from time to time. Remember? Spit on the dirt, rubbed it together, put it on his eyes, go wash. He got healed later. But in this case, Peter knew somehow that Jesus was going to heal this man essentially as he's speaking the words. He didn't say he will heal you. He didn't say he has healed you. He says he heals you. So somehow Peter knew. And he's so confident that also, uh, essentially in the same breath, he gives commands, a command, two commands. Arise and make your bed. So this is confidence on Peter's part. And he has faith to know in that moment that Jesus is going to heal Aeneas. Now we may or may not ever have this kind of faith in our lives when we bump into sickness and death. We may pray with faith that God can heal, but we may not necessarily pray with the same kind of faith that he will heal in that moment. But that's okay. Somehow Peter knew, but we may not know. Listen to the commentary. He commands Aeneas with an imperative to get up, ordering him to do something that is humanly impossible, an action that only divine power can make possible. Third, he commands Aeneas with a second imperative to make your bed, an order which spells out the consequences of his healing. From now on, he will be able to spread his sleeping mat on the floor, no longer needing others to do this for him. Think what he's been through and not being able to take care of himself and all the things that others have been doing for him all these years. And now he will be able to take care of himself again. It should remind you of Jesus' healing in Mark chapter 2. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. This should sound familiar. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So remember, this, the, the name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, but it's what Jesus both began to do and teach, right? That's from... Luke, describing the book of Luke, but therefore we know the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. And so Christ healed while he walked the earth and they could see him. Christ still heals as the ascended, reigning, resurrected Messiah. He's the one who heals. So just like Jesus when when he healed the paralytic in Mark 2, we see in this situation that Aeneas did obey. He arose immediately. So we can say a couple of things. This was not a healing through medicines or herbs that we know take time through natural processes. This is a miraculous healing, a divine work to bring immediate healing healing to his life. This is the immediate divine power of Christ from heaven upon this man's paralyzed body. Now upon receiving this wondrous healing work of Christ, think about what he does. He immediately obeys Peter's command. Do you think he was going to lay there unless he was commanded to get up? I think it's, prob- it's likely that he was going to get up anyways. Right? And the point is that, that his very desire, which is surely to d- enjoy this new strength of his body that had been gone for so long, is bound up with Peter's command to him. And the idea here, I think, that we want to ponder is for him and for us is will Aeneas continue to find his duty as his delight? I think we can see in this particular situation 
that that command that was given to him would have certainly been his delight with a new strength of his body. Also, we really need to take note here that Peter emphasizes that Jesus, the Christ, is the one who heals in this situation. Peter does not leave any room for anyone to conclude that he has this kind of healing power from within himself. Jesus Christ is the healer, and he is the only healer of his church. Now, it is true that he brought Peter there, and that Peter was the one who had the faith to declare this healing, but Peter didn't do it. Jesus did it. Commentary says, Peter interested Christ in his case and engaged him for his relief. Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Peter does not pretend to do it himself by any power of his own, but declares it to be Christ's act and deed. Directs him to look up to Christ for help. Peter puts the focus on Jesus. And this is worth considering in today's world where often we will see uh, questionable healing ministries where individuals may uh, instead bring attention to themselves instead of bringing glory to Christ and pointing to Jesus. Verse 35. Impact. What happens as a result of this? All who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So in this particular situation, it is the Lord's will for this miraculous event to be woven together with the conversion process of many individuals in this area. The text says all. As a result of this divine healing, the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of all at Lydda and Sharon to turn to Jesus as the Christ. Does that mean every single individual? Maybe. With such a good shepherd working in their midst, they are brought to faith, and the comfort of their Messiah's love and power resting in His forgiveness and His reign. They're receiving the same message that Jesus had to suffer and die and that the message of the gospel, remission of sins, repentance and forgiveness of sin through Christ is being preached to them. And in that context of the gospel message comes this great healing. And this one that they're called to trust in as the Lamb of God who has taken away their sins, is the one who's been resurrected and reigns and cares for them. And so the Lord weaves this into their salvation experience. They see this man and they see the love of Christ and the power of Christ. And God gives them faith to believe that Jesus is the one who's done this. Commentary says they all submitted to the convincing proof and evidence there was in this of the divine origin of the Christian doctrine and turned to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. They turned from Judaism to Christianity. They embraced the doctrine of Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, and submitted to Him, to His ordinances, and turned themselves over to Him to be ruled, to be taught, and to be saved by Him. So they were converted in the context of this Wondrous healing. And we're going to see next week at Joppa, something very similar happens there through resurrection. So as we consider this, let's seek God's comfort together. Some questions for you to bring this home for us. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ to oversee your body and your soul, both in life and in death, however he pleases? 
In this situation, we see that Aeneas, he's taken through eight years of suffering. And he rises up healed completely. How can we be like Peter and Aeneas? What ways do we want to emulate them? We don't know much about what's going on in Aeneas' heart, but we see Peter's faith, don't we? That Jesus heals his church. I read the commentary from Theodorus van der Groh on his exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism. To be always of good courage and to engage in battle with strength and a good hope, the struggling Christian must necessarily always have a steadfast comfort in this life. There must be something that is continually administered, continually administered to him from heaven. Do you hear that experiential language? There must be something that is continually administered to him from heaven. There must be something that enables him in all strife and in all the sorrows of this world, which are manifold and occur relentlessly, to lift up, encourage, refresh, and comfort his soul, saying, Why are thy cast down on my soul? Hope in God. So I think we should be able to consider Aeneas and what he went through and how our precious Savior healed him to be comforted in our lives, no matter what we're going through, to think about who Jesus is and what this shows about his heart and about his power and about his presence with his people. Peter trusted fully in Christ's love and power toward Aeneas. We can learn from Peter's faith. We want to have that kind of faith. We want to trust in Christ's love and power toward his church. That he's with us, that he sees our suffering, and that he draws near to us. There's confusion, isn't there, sometimes in our minds about physical healings that are carried out by Christ and in the book of Acts. And it's something that we're going to bump into over and over again in the book of Acts. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus Christ heals his church whenever and however he sees fit in body and in soul. And that he still does this to this day. And for us to have faith to believe that Jesus Christ may very well perform miraculous healings before our eyes. And that if he does not, we continue to press on in faith and devotion to him. Aeneas received this divine healing of Christ upon his body. Think about what he went through. What did he do to receive such a wonderful thing? It's going to be even more apparent when we look at next week, when we look at a resurrection. What did Tabitha do to be brought back from the dead? And there's a message here about the monergistic action of God in our salvation. That our salvation is of God alone. And our comfort in this life, walking with Him, is found in more and more believing that we have nothing We are filled with sin and misery and all of our deliverance is of Him. It all comes to us from Him of His kindness and of His work and He comes and He works it upon us by His love and kindness like He did upon the body of Aeneas when He brought him from paralysis to the ability to rise up and to walk. After eight years of such suffering, What would be the state of your faith? So there's something in this text that should cause us each to ponder the idea of persevering in faith in the midst of chronic sufferings. 
in this life, we will have chronic sufferings. Not just short-term piercings. But we'll have chronic sufferings in this life. What are the chronic sufferings in your life? What are the ways that you've been suffering for years? In this time, do you remain with faith towards Christ? Aeneas can be an example for you to consider of God bringing relief in His timing. Sometimes, the Lord doesn't tell us how much we need to suffer before He brings relief. And we must learn to wait on Him and be patient. And He'll grow our faith as we do that. And it may be that the relief comes when we die. Some things may not pass until we pass. Here's a question. Does the Lord Jesus Christ still, still heal, heal His church today? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ performs from heaven divine healings upon broken bodies today? I believe we can see from Scripture that those types of miraculous healings, there's no reason for us to think that they no longer occur. We must have the right attitude towards these things. Never demanding God is no genie in a bottle. Never treating the Lord like a name it and claim it as if He's obliged to us to ever carry out anything because we say so. And yet, see His heart in healing Aeneas. See His power in healing Aeneas. And He still has the same heart and the same power today. And we can pray to Him with expectation and hope that He will heal the body. Does the Lord need miracles in order to accomplish conversions? That's another question that should come to our mind from this text today. So, it's possible you might misinterpret this text if you just focused here and think that conversions are really only going to occur in the context of these types of miraculous healings. That's not true. Next, does the Lord Jesus Christ always bring miraculous healing to those with faith? No. So we can't, we have to be careful in how we interpret texts like this. We can't believe that miraculous healings are necessary in order for widespread conversions to occur. Nor must we come to believe that if you really have faith, you'll definitely be healed. There's sad stories, right, of people in churches who believe that kind of being shunned if they stay sick for a long time. Right, well, if you just believed, you know. I don't want your unbelief to be, you know, I don't want that to rub off on me. Maybe I'll die too. And so that's really sad. That's really sick doctrine. It's just not true. Listen to the commentary. It is because of this consistent focus on Jesus and his power that the link between miracles and conversions and church growth is the power of the Lord Jesus. There's no automatic link between the two. There's no automatic link between the two. Miracles do not automatically lead to conversions and church growth. You can see Paul's experience in Lystra in chapter 14. And we'll see that when we get to it. And the lack of miracles does not hinder or prevent conversions and church growth. And we'll see that in Pisidian Antioch when there's conversions and there's no miracles. Miracles are caused by Jesus' power and conversions are caused by Jesus' power. Sometimes Jesus chooses to heal miraculously Sometimes he does not heal despite the believer's prayers and their faith in the Lord. 
that he can heal them. So we know that we belong to the Lord and he owns us and he determines whether we live or die. He determines whether our bodies are sick or healthy. He determines these things and we trust in him. So what is our only hope, our only comfort in the depths of our sin and our misery, brothers and sisters? Where can we find hope? Where do you look to find hope? Might you be tempted sometimes to look for miraculous healings? Might you be tempted to find comfort in dramatic church growth? Might you find comfort challenged if your health isn't good? Or your comfort challenged if the church isn't growing? Well, then where is your comfort being drawn from if that's true? Don't you want to have your comfort in Christ himself? In Christ himself. And in his divine ministry to save us to the uttermost. Isn't that where we want to place our hope and our comfort in Christ alone? What is our only comfort in life and death? We can say it, can't we? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our only strong abode. May we trust in you. You are our only comfort. Oh, we pray, Lord God, that you would purify our hearts from idols that we would be beware of these other places that we look for comfort and that we would indeed be so thoroughly linked in to the comfort of heaven, the anchor of our souls being Jesus Christ alone. Bless us to this end, we pray, O oh God, that we may live and die happily, enjoying this, our only comfort, that we are not our own, but in body and soul, both in life and death, that we belong unto our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.